you're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the Book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, good to see you all. Uh, This morning, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're actually looking at the very last verse of Ephesians chapter 1. I'm really excited. Uh, Next week, we're going to be diving into chapter 2. Woo! This is going to be good. Uh, So we're wrapping up a section. We've been looking at the power of God demonstrated in the life of Jesus. And uh, what I'd like to do, just so it's fresh upon our minds, is read Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 19, uh, reading down to verse 23. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1.19, I pray that you would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. Uh, We've been talking about the power of God in verse 19 and the fact that the power of God is overwhelming. It is indescribable. And I love what Paul says. He says this power of God is working in us. It is literally causing the effectual reality of the Christian life within us. And uh, as he gets done with verse 19, and he's talking about the power of God, of course, you know, the, the question probably in the early church would have been, well, Paul, that's great. God's power is overwhelming. That's wonderful. But could you give us an example? <laughs> and Paul says, I'd love to do that. In fact, I want to give you several examples. The first example he gives is the life of Jesus. And again, we've been walking through this. It goes from verse 20 down to verse 23. And again, we've been breaking up that section, and so if you've been following us along, this is all review, but uh, we've been breaking up that section, verse 20 down to verse 23, and a few key uh, subsections, and just again for review, let me give those to you. Uh, verse, the beginning of verse 20, uh, I am calling, the, calling it the performance. It's the fact that he, God has taken his power and he's like reached his hand into the physical deadness of Jesus and raised a physically dead Jesus from physical death and brought him into physical life. And that power is being performed or worked in the life of Jesus. Uh, the end of verse 20 through the beginning of verse 21, uh, I am calling the position. So here's... Here's the father. He takes the physically alive Jesus now and brings him into the heavenly realms and sits him, Jesus, at the right hand of the father. And now he is in a position, which Paul says, is far above. And it's far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. Now, the end of verse 21 through verse 22, I am calling the preeminence. It's this idea that Jesus has a name above every other name. Not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And all things have been placed underneath the feet of Jesus. Oh, isn't that good? That Jesus has the preeminence. Jesus has the control. Jesus has all the power. Jesus has, he is in this preeminent position. 
And I love what uh, Paul says in Colossians about the fact that he, Jesus, alone is the preeminent one. That he is the superior one. He, he's the one with all authority and might and power and dominion. It's awesome. Uh, verse 23, uh, the very beginning of verse 23, uh, in verse tw- uh, sorry, in verse 22, beginning of verse 23, I am calling the person. The fact that here is Jesus, the head of the church, which is his body. And, we, and again, the last couple of weeks, we were, we've been looking at this idea of the person. The fact that Jesus is the head, that he is in the head position. All authority, hey, all the direction of the body is, is really coming from the head. And then we were looking last week, in the last study, at this idea of the body, the fact that we as the church are the body of Christ, and what does that practically mean uh, in our world today? And that brings us uh, to the finale here at the end of verse 23, which I am calling the purpose. And again, just, just so you have it in your mind, Paul concludes this whole idea in the fact that he is the head and that we are the body uh, of Christ. He says the fullness, uh, let, me, let me back up to the end of verse 22, uh, he made him head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, or fills all things in all ways. It's this idea that the purpose is, this, is, is the fullness. Uh, what is God's agenda? Why, why has God been showing, showcasing the power, uh, his own power in the life of Jesus? Oh, it's for the sake of the fullness. It's for the sake of this filling idea, uh, which is what I want to get into. Now, I just want to, this probably doesn't mean much to, to a lot of us, but just for all the nerds out there. So nerds, be excited. If you're not a nerd, just give me, Give me a minute and a half, and then jump back in. Uh, but for all the nerds out there, uh, it's important to note that the end of verse 23, most scholars say that the end of verse 23, this little passage that we're looking at, this, the fullness of him who fills all in all, <clears throat> that phrase, according to most scholars, is the most complex and hard-to-translate phrase in the whole book of Ephesians. And the reason being is because most scholars, there's this argument in the scholar stuff of, well, what is the fullness referring to? <laughs> is it Jesus and the fullness of Jesus filling the church, or is it the fullness of the church filling Jesus? Now, you can have whatever opinion you want to have, and it probably doesn't matter. But again, the complexity is in the grammatical language of, of, of how Paul wrote this, is it could be taken either way. It could be understood that we are his fullness, or it could be understood that he is our fullness. And ultimately, they're both true at some level. So let me walk you through this really quickly. Uh, Some would say that, you know, does Jesus fill and complete the church? Yes. (laughs) So is is it that we as the church, his body, receive his fullness and he is filling us and now we are complete in him? Well, yeah, that's a biblical idea. Some say, well, grammatically, you could say the other way, that somehow the church fills and completes Jesus. Now, it sounds weird, but there is an element, I think, that is true in one sense. And, and what the scholars point out is the fact that, think about it this way, as, as the church grows worldwide and, and as the church matures, in, in one sense, it's like it, it can, I don't, Completes is probably a dangerous word, but it, it, it fills up Christ. 
uh, let me say it this way. If, if Christ did not have a body or a bride, you, you realize that there, in one sense, he is incomplete. He needs a body in the world today. That, that he wants a bride, right? That he's a groom, the church is his bride, and, and he needs that. And just as a, a, a man and a woman come together and they become one, and in a sense, yeah, they're individual, but they complete each other, the scholars would say, well, see, that same thing's happening here, that, that it's like the church is, is completing Christ. Now, he is, he is fully sufficient in and of himself. He is complete in and of himself. The Godhead does not need us. Uh, we understand that. And yet it's like he condescends to, to need us. He wants us in relationship and intimacy. Uh, Matthew Henry, uh, the old Puritan, says, this, says it this way. And yet the church is said to be Christ's fullness. Because Christ, as mediator, would not be complete if he had not a church. How could he be a king if he had not a kingdom? This, therefore, comes into the honor of Christ as mediator, that the church is his fullness. So again, there's, there's this pull in scholarship looking at the end of verse 23 saying, well, this is a complex issue. <laughs> in other words, does the church, in a sense, give fullness and completeness to Christ, or is it that we receive his completeness, and he is our fullness? And I would say, yes! <laughs> you know, that, that it, there, there's probably an element of both. Now, if, if you're going to really press me and say, Nathan, you had to choose one, I would say, well, I would, I would tend to lean, based on all of what Scripture says, that we receive his fullness, that he completes us, that we are the one that is, that is in the need position. That he doesn't need us. He wants us. He doesn't need us. And as such, it seems like even just the tenor of Paul's writings, the idea is that it is Christ and the Holy Spirit who does the active work of filling. It's Christ and the Holy Spirit that we receive our fullness as the church from. So it makes sense, no matter what the grammatical structure here is, since you can take it both ways, the tenor of Scripture is that it's not that we complete Christ. He is complete in himself. And I, and I do agree with Matthew Henry in the sense that, in, in, in a way, we as Christ, Christ needs a body on, on earth today, right? That he's in the heavenly realms, and we as his body are to live as his body. We are to be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ, as we talked about last week. So I, I do agree in that sense. But I think the tenor, and you got to also understand, the whole flow of Ephesians is, this is all about Christ in you. What does it look like for the reality of the gospel, the life of Jesus, to actually come in? What does it mean to be in Christ? Which is Paul's main emphasis in the first three chapters of Ephesians. So again, based on the context, it seems like this idea of the filling, who is the, who is the completion, who, that, that we as the church are the ones who are being filled, and we are complete in Christ. In fact, let me just read you a few passages uh, in Ephesians 3.19, so just a page over or so, it says uh, that Paul's prayer is that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Get this. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, we as the church are to be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I don't know if you ever thought that through, but do you realize how crazy that sounds? 
that, that you, if you take the fullness of who God is, he wants to take his fullness and dump that into the church. He wants to take the fullness of all that he is and dump that into your life. That's an amazing reality, isn't it? What, what would it look like if your life experienced the fullness of him? That, that would change how you think. That, that would change how you lived. See, that, that would change how you talked. See, that would change how you, you thought. I mean, it would change everything in your life. Uh, Ephesians 4.13, uh, Paul is talking about the fact that, that he is given apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists uh, for the sake of the church. And the in conclusion of all of that, uh, the reason that he's equipping and edifying the church is so that, verse 13, of chapter 4, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, get this, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you know what God is doing in our life? He is bringing us to a point as the, as the body of Christ that we may be measured, that, that our lives will be scrutinized by the fullness of Christ. Do you know what your life is to reveal? The fullness of of Jesus. Hey, do you know what is to be demonstrated in your life? The fullness of Jesus. Do you know what your life is to look like? Jesus. Now, I, I get it. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus in a literal sense, but we are filled with the very spirit of Jesus. It's the indwelling life of Christ. The Holy Spirit has come to indwell and live within your life. And you realize that, that if the fullness would somehow get inside of you. It, he is far bigger than we are. He is going to have to press himself out. He's going to be oozing out of every pore of our bodies. You will not be able to contain him. He is going to come out of your life. And what is the world going to see when they look at your life? They're going to see Jesus. What is the world going to be astounded by? They're not going to be astounded by you. They're going to be astounded by Jesus. What is the world going to be captivated by? They're not going to be captivated by you. They're going to be captivated by Jesus. Oh, I want that. Oh, I want that. And you realize it says that, that we are his body, and it is the fullness of him who feels all in all. Uh, my translation says who feels all things in all ways. Uh, that, that idea of all in all is really interesting. Uh, some, some of the scholars point out the fact that it's talking about the entirety of the universe, that, that, that he is filling all in all, which means his life pervades everything. Some will say, well, no, in the context, it's talking about the church and that he is providing his presence and his power specifically to the church. And I, I do think there's, there's truth in both of those. Uh, let me just read this. This, uh, this is one scholar. This is how he said it. I just I just like how he, how he articulated it. He says, Christ is the one who completely fills everything. That is the whole of creation, the earthly and the heavenly, comprising all of humanity, as well as the entire angelic realm, especially the rebellious powers. The nature of this filling is not to be explained in a physical or spatial sense. Christ pervades all things with his sovereign rule, directing all things to their appointed end, and this entails his functioning as the powerful ruler over against the principalities and giving grace and strength to his people, the church. So you realize that this idea that he feels all in all, which means he's the one in control. Again, we walk through this, 
in verses 20 and 21. All things have been placed underneath his feet. He's in this position far above all things. That he's in, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, which is a position of control and rulership and authority and power and dominion. Well, and also relationship and intimacy. Right? But he's in this position of control. And what is he doing? He is, he, as God, is invading every aspect. There is no, there, there is nothing that he doesn't, that he doesn't control and oversee, which is, which is pretty amazing. And now he is taking his fullness and he is placing it, he is dumping it into his body, the church. Ah, you and I. It's a great thought. Ah, go, back to the, go back to verse 19. We have to keep in light of the fact, that, and I probably have not emphasized this enough throughout this little mini-series here, we have to go back to the fact that we're talking about the power of God, not just as a concept, but we're talking about the power of God in light of what God is doing inside of our lives. Again, in verse 19, he's saying that, Paul's been praying that, hey, I, I want you to know a couple of things. And again, he talks about the, the hope of his calling, right? The inheritance among the saints that we have. But then also, verse 19, this surpassing greatness of his power toward us, toward us, toward us. See, isn't it interesting? By the way, the word toward us has this also, it can be translated into us, has this idea of, you know, like this in and through kind of an idea. You realize that the power of God is not this some abstract concept. What Paul is trying to articulate is that the power of God is now has, has come within your life and is now, try, is, is now to empower your life. See, it's not a power that you get to use and abuse, right? This isn't like you just shock people or, you know, it's not for manipulation and control, right? It's this idea that, that the calling that God has upon your life is utterly impossible. So what is he doing? He is giving you his grace Right? He's given you his spirit. He's given you his enabling power so that you can live the life you were called to live. So as you get into this idea in the passage, what's really strong is, do you recognize that you and I are to live by the indwelling life of Christ? Which means that we have the power of God within us to live triumphantly in this world. You realize this is all about him. And in the demonstration of his life, life through us. So he has given us his overwhelming power so the church can function as the church is called to function. So that you as a Christian can live and function as a Christian is called to live. So you are not to live in worry, fear, or anxiety. Even in this season, that, that fear should not be in your life. That you can live in joy and peace. That love is to be the nature of our life. That this impossible standard that Christ has given us somehow can be lived. Not because you have the ability in and of yourself to pull this thing off. It's impossible. And yet the impossible God has come to indwell your life. And as such, he wants to perform the impossible in and through you by his enabling grace, by his spirit, by his power. It's interesting as you go to the Old Testament, <clears throat> there's this idea that one of the names of God is Jehovah Sabaoth, 
which is this idea of the Lord of hosts or the Lord of angel armies or the, the, the Lord of it, the angelic host. You realize that when you go into the Old Testament, that this God of overwhelming strength, overwhelming abundance, overwhelming power, who controls all the angelic armies, you realize he has come to indwell your life. Do you know how awesome that is? See, see, most times we look at our temptations, we look at our struggles, we look at our circumstances, we look at our situations, we look at our whatever, and we're like, oh no, this, this thing is so big for me. And we begin to tell God how big our problems are. God, do you realize what I'm struggling through? Hey, God, do you realize, have you seen my finances? Hey, God, have you seen my family? Hey, God, have you seen my circumstances? Hey, God, have you seen my whatever? And we just keep telling God how big our problems are. Wouldn't it be interesting if we began to recognize that the same God of the Old Testament, the Jehovah Sabaoth, the one, the God of angel armies, the God of all-consuming all power, the, the God who is overall do you realize that that same God has come to indwell your life via the Holy Spirit? And now you have the God of angel armies living inside of you. Now you have Jehovah Sabaoth living inside of you. Which means when I encounter a problem, I should, I probably shouldn't be telling God how big my problems are. Wouldn't it be interesting if I began to tell my problems how big my God is? See, wouldn't it be interesting for me to look at lust or for me to look at greed or for me to look at worry or for me to look at pride or for me to look at whatever it is that you may be dealing with? Wouldn't it be interesting if we looked at the problems of our life, we looked at the coronavirus stuff, we, we begin to look at all the fear and the anxiety going on in the world. Wouldn't it be amazing if we didn't say, God, do you realize how big our problems are? Wouldn't it be fascinating for us to know who our God is and we begin to say, God, hey, you are the God of hosts. Hey, you are God Almighty. You know, this problem really is not that big, <laughs> big of a deal for you. That you can handle my problem. So problem, you need, to, you need to know how big my God is. That yeah, you may look monstrous in my life, but my God is far bigger than even you. See, that would change how we lived. And now the God a power, the God of hosts, the God of angel armies has come to live inside of you. Do you realize that you can be triumphant in your living? You, you can walk in victory and hope and freedom and peace and joy. Why? Because God lives inside of you. Now, I know that if it was just up to you and up to your abilities and up to your strength and up to your wisdom, you would have no hope. In fact, Isaiah tells us the very best that we can pull off in our own ability is but filthy rags. See, we, we do not have it within us. See, we do not have the capability. But he does. And he lives inside of us. See, what if we begin to realize that what he is longing to do is to take his fullness and begin to deposit that within your very life? That he would feel all in all, not just in terms of the universe, not even just in terms of the church, but even your life. Uh, listen to what Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. I, I, I quote this all the time. One of my favorite passages. But, but listen afresh to what Peter says. Peter says in Second Peter 1, 3, <clears throat> that his, speaking of Jesus, his divine power has granted or given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted or given to us his, 
exceedingly great and precious promises so that through them you may become partakers, get this, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Do you realize that you get to be a partaker of the divine nature? Why? Because he's invading your life. And as a Christian, my position is that I am in him, and he is in me. And I'm a partaker of, of the divine nature. And Peter tells us that in Jesus, do you recognize that in Jesus is all things that I need for life and for godliness. That if I need anything for life or if I need anything for godliness, it's found in one place, Jesus. So I do not need to go looking anywhere else. I need to go to Jesus. And now that same Jesus lives inside of me through his indwelling spirit. We call him the Holy Spirit. That the same Jesus lives inside of me. And I have all things that I need for life and for godliness. Wouldn't it be amazing if I began to recognize that he is wanting to take his life and his fullness and deposit that within me? If you have your Bibles, I'll flip back a couple of pages to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> I love Romans chapter 8. And uh, I, I want to read a section to you, and it's going to be a little long. I, I, and it's purposeful, though. I, I want you to hear the tenor of what Paul is saying. This is so powerful. Just, just think of it in light of the fact that Christ is to indwell your hearts by faith. That they, hey, you are to live and dwell by the Holy Spirit. That the fullness of him is to fill all in all. Listen to what Paul says, Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> uh, starting in verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if through the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the Son of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. The eager expectation of the creation waits for the appearance of the Son of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but by the will of God who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown within ourselves while eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For we are saved through hope, but hope that is not seen is not hope. For why does a man still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Listen to this. 
For we do not know how to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that, we, so, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, listen to the conclusion of chapter 8, verse 31. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? In other words, what is the the thought about all of this? What, what, What do we say about all of this? Listen. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, yes, who is risen, who is also at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, or coronavirus. I added the last one in. (laughs) As it is written, verse 36, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things, Paul says. In what things? Oh, it's the tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, and even the coronavirus. In all these things, says Paul, We are more than conquerors. What's a conqueror? It's Alexander the Great. It's Napoleon Bonaparte. It's it's these great people who would come in and just take over everything. Paul says, do you not realize that in Christ, the one who indwells you, makes you, in him, more than a conqueror? Hey, that you can conquer tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. It doesn't mean you, you're not going to go through it. You're probably still going to go through it. It's not that you avoid problems. It's not that you avoid suffering. It's not that you don't have issues. You do have issues. But in the middle of your issues, you are more than a conqueror. Why? Because the one who has conquered all things lives inside of you. So, again, listen to verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him, through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, neither things present, nor things to come, neither height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear that? Paul is saying, you have this amazing reality living inside of you. Christ has now come to indwell you. That he is leveraging all circumstances for his purpose and his plan. That in all things you are more than a conqueror through him who loved us. Do you realize that nothing can separate us from him? 
What would it look like if we, and as the body of Christ today, began to recognize that the fullness of him is to fill us? That, that when the world looked upon our lives, they are not to see us, they are to see him. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Let me just read it really quick. <clears throat> Paul says, but we have this treasure. What, what's the treasure? In the context, he's talking about the life of Jesus. This infilling of the Holy Spirit. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, this, these earthen vessels, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Again, we've been talking about the power of God in Ephesians. And again, it's not our power, it's not our might, it's not our ability, it's not our anything. This is all about him and wanting to take his power and work his power in and through us. So Paul says that, hey, we have this treasure in these earthen vessels, these jars of clay. The, the word in the Greek actually is this idea of a cracked pot. That it's a, it's a jar that has this big crack down the middle. <clears throat> and he goes on and says, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted, we are suffering in every way, but we are not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Uh, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He says, do you realize what you are? You are a cracked pot. Now, if you're like a normal person, you would say, um, excuse me, I don't want to be a pot that has a crack in it. Can I be a non-cracked pot? Paul says, you don't want that. <laughs> you want to be a cracked pot. And of course, we look at Paul and we're like, Paul, I don't think you get this. I, I, I want to have, have this appearance that I have all things put together, that I have this thing figured out, that I have no issues and no problems, and I'm, I'm doing good. Paul says, you realize you are a crackpot. That when people look at your life, they go, whoa, look at that crack. Now, why would they say that? Well, you know, he has that personality. You know, he has that. Wouldn't it be interesting? The, the reason Paul says the beauty is in the crack is because you realize that if there's this pot that has a big crack in it, whatever is inside the pot can't stay in the pot. It's going to come out of the pot. That here's this big crack down the pot, and whatever is contained in the pot, it, it's not going to be able to stay in. It's going to come out. Paul says, do you realize that what is inside of your life is Jesus? Not the literal Jesus. We're talking about the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. That, that, that as you are indwelt by the, the life of Christ, do you realize that if you have this crack, that it's going to come out of you? Paul says, that's why I boast about my weaknesses. Paul says, I'm not a great orator. Paul says, I mean, hey, I mean, I, I've got issues. Look at my personality. I mean, hey, I've, and yet what, God, what you think is foolish, hey, what the world deems as dumb, hey, hey, what the world seems as a disadvantage God is leveraging that in this world to showcase his power, to showcase his life, to showcase his glory. Wouldn't it be amazing if your weaknesses weren't just weaknesses for the sake of being weak? What, what if your weaknesses was an opportunity for God to demonstrate his strength through? See, wouldn't it be interesting if your weird personality, and by the way, you do have a weird personality. Sorry to tell that. No one's probably told that to you. I'm telling you, you have a weird personality. But wouldn't it be interesting in the middle of your personality if Christ and his fullness could invade you so that in the midst of your weakness and your personality, what is seen is not you but him. See, wouldn't it be interesting if, 
if, if that struggle, if that habit, if that addiction or whatever it is that you've been dealing with for year after year after year after year, and you're just like, I just, I am so weak in that area. Wouldn't it be amazing if you would allow the fullness of God to get into the middle of that area? And what was your weakness suddenly becomes an area of strength, not because you have the power, but because he is demonstrating himself through you. And when someone looks at your life, they just see this big crack down the side of you, and they go, I, I, I don't think I can explain your life outside of Jesus. By the way, do you know what we call someone who lives like this? Yeah, we have to call him a Christian. Because the Christian life is not to be explained in terms of you. The Christian life can only be explained in terms of Jesus. So Paul says, I am going to boast about my infirmities. I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. Why? So that the strength and the power of God can be seen in the middle of my weaknesses. See, see I would love to have this, this guy who is just so full of language for God just to turn his life upside down and he goes back into the job and everyone says, hey, I've noticed, why, why are you not using the, the language anymore? And he goes, I can't. I mean, even if I wanted to, it's like God has changed my heart and now it's not even on the inside. And I just, and wouldn't it be amazing? They're like, hey, that's impossible because we know you. Hey, we know how you live. Hey, we know how you think. Hey, we know that when you hit your thumb with a hammer, stuff comes out of you. And we've been watching you. We cannot explain your life. See, that, that is the Christian life. I love what Ian Thomas says. I, I, I say this all the time. But I think this is one of my favorite, favorite quotes. Ian Thomas, this great British man, uh, old preacher. Uh, Ian Thomas says, and I'll, I'll read the actual quote instead of my paraphrase, <laughs> but his quote says, the Christian life can be explained only in terms of Jesus Christ. And if your life as a Christian can still be explained in terms of you, whether it be your personality, your willpower, your gifts, your talent, your money, your courage, your scholarship, your dedication, your sacrifice, or your anything, then although you may have the Christian life, you are not yet living it. And he goes on in that quote to say that your life is to be totally inexplainable to the world around you. That when the world looks at you, the only, the only way they should describe your life is, are you a Christian? Because I don't understand how you live. How, how is it that when, when all the world is in a panic, you are in calm and peace? Hey, why is it when, when the whole economy tanks that you still have joy? See, how is it that that neighbor that just bothers everybody, that you go out of your way to serve and love on them. So see, how is it that you just have this life within you? See, how is it that you don't have that language that the rest of the world has? See, how is it that you don't have the same thought process that, that the rest of the world has? How is it that, wouldn't it be amazing if once again the reality of the Christian life returned to the sta stage of time. And when the world looked upon the church, they did not see the church. They saw the head, which is Jesus. See, it is time for us to get out of the way and for the world to see Jesus. See, this is not about you. This is not about what you can perform. This is not about what you, how you can minister unto him. This is not about, hey, my ministry, my talent, and my whatever. This is not about you. This is not about me. This is about Jesus. Romans, I just, oh, 
Romans tells us in Romans 11.36. Again, I think it's one of the best verses to summarize the entirety of the Bible. But Romans 11.36, Paul says, For from him, Jesus, and through him, Jesus, and to him, Jesus, are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. See, this is not about us. This is about him. This is about, hey, could I get out of the way and allow his fullness to be seen? This is, hey, would I allow him to fill me to such a way where he is revealed in my world? See, that's the reality of the church. And what is so sad to me is, you know, we go into churches today, and there's all this stuff that is everything but Jesus. It's church growth methods, it's complaints and arguments about the worship, or it's celebra- celebrityism, it's, it's lights and flashes. And See, wouldn't it be amazing if we came back, and I'm, I'm not against great music, and I'm not against, I'm not against any of that stuff, but what I'm against is these churches who are so obsessed with the program, or so obsessed with the color of carpet, or so obsessed with this thing that it removes the focus from the one whom we're we're the focus upon, which is Jesus. This is all from him and through him and to him. And he is to receive all the praise and all the honor and all the glory forever and ever. He's the one that has a name above every other name. He is the one that is seated at the right hand. And we are in him. That, that, That all things have been placed underneath his feet. That he has the authority, that he has the power, and he wants to reveal that reality in and through your life to the world. I've been convicted lately. It's this idea that, you know, when I hang out with somebody, or when I spend time with somebody, or I talk to somebody on the phone, and are they left with the impression of me, or are they left with the impression of him? You know, when I spend time with someone and, and we leave and we depart, are, are, they, are they thinking of Nathan or are they thinking of Jesus? Am I, am I taking the opportunities to allow people's gaze and focus to be upon Jesus Christ? Is the one thing that people can say about my life is, wow, he was, he was obsessed with Jesus. And anytime I spent any time in his presence, he just kept pushing me back to Jesus in fact, he was consistently decreasing and Jesus was always increasing. Can that be said of your life? See, I, I, I don't want people, I, I, don't, I don't want them to leave with a taste of Nathan. I want them to leave with a taste of Jesus. See, if I preach, I, I don't want them to go, wow, that was a nice sermon. Wow, that, that, was, that was good. Or, oh, well, it wasn't so good. <laughs> See, I just, whether it was good or whether it was bad, I... See, I want people to leave going, wow, we, we saw Jesus. We met Jesus. We just, oh, we want Jesus. See, I, I want my world when I'm going grocery shopping to be somehow dumbfounded by the reality of Jesus and not my life. See, the, the taste that I want to leave in people's mouths is, is not me. I want, I want them to have Jesus upon their lips. Is that true in your life? David was facing Goliath, and as Goliath was standing there, David looked at the giant and says, look, this day <laughs> is your end. And uh, this is my paraphrase. But, you know, you're, hey, I'm going to bring you down, and I'm going to cut off your head, and, hey, all, all the birds are going to eat your body. 
But listen to what David says. This is in 1 Samuel 17, 46. The inconclusion of all this, hey, I'm going to kill you and your birds are going to eat your body. <clears throat> but Goliath, you're coming down. Why? David says, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. See, what's about to take place is going to be impossible in the natural realm. You do not put a little tiny teenage kid against this mammoth of a man. But Goliath, hey, when I take you down, everyone's going to know that there is a God in Israel. Elijah, when, when Elijah was dealing with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, and, and all the prophets of Baal you know, were doing their thing, and you know, after, whole, you know, after hours, Elijah says, hey, put that away, and he rebuilds the altar of the Lord, and he, he, he floods that whole thing in the time of drought. Right? He, he takes a little bit of water that they have, which would be precious. He dumps it upon the altar and puts it on the trough that they built. And So now here's the altar and the wood and the sacrifice that's all covered with water, making this the most difficult, impossible situation. And he steps back and he prays. He says, God, would you reveal yourself and would you come down in fire? And when, when the fire came down from heaven, it ate up this sacrifice and the wood and it burnt the stones and even the earth and licked up all the water. And when all the people saw, they cried out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. See, they weren't saying, woo, yay, Elijah. Man, you, you have some talent. Boy, your ability. Hey, your prayer life, woo. See, they were not, see, Elijah was not, he was involved, but he was not seen. This was not about Elijah. This was about God. Wouldn't it be amazing in our lives if, this was not about us. This was about him. That David going against Goliath actually isn't about David. It's about the power and strength of God. That Elijah going against the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel was not, actually not about Elijah. It was about the power of God. I mean, you, you look at you know, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What, what was Nebuchadnezzar dumbfounded by? It's, it's not the fact that, that they were rejecting him and standing against him. I mean, he was frustrated with that, obviously. He threw him in the fire. But what he saw was God's power. Uh, in the early church, <laughs> it just cracks me up. In the early church, you realize that the disciples were not that smart compared to the culture. They were, they were the northern boys. You know, they, they listened to country western music. You know, of course, they had the, you know, the, you know, the overall kind of stuff, you know. And they just, they talked with a, with a twang and, you know, the, the northern guys. And, uh. Right, they're, out from, they're out from Galilee. And in fact, the Pharisees, you know, the Pharisees are the scholars. Hey, they're the ones who had, uh, are learned. They're the ones who write the big, thick books. In, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, <laughs> I love this statement. It says that they looked and they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Now get this. And they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. And they were astounded. See, they looked at Peter and John, and they just said, you know, you guys are from up north. You guys are comic book level. You guys didn't even pass the third grade. You guys listen to country western music. I mean, you guys speak with a twang. But why were they astonished? Why, why were these scholar people just, why were they wowed? Listen to this. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Could that be said of you? Could it be said of you that you've been filled with the fullness of God? You realize that you need this. That the reality of the Christian life is the filling. Turn to Acts chapter 2, right? The outside God has come to live on the inside. 
And the way that we know that we are Christians is the fact that we have been indwelt by the very life of Jesus called this Holy Spirit. That the, what is inside of you is this feeling. In fact, four times in those first couple of verses of Acts chapter 2, that word filled is used. The idea is that there's this outside substance, like this glass of water, this, right, this pitcher of water, and it's being poured into a glass, and that glass is being filled up. You realize that is to be your life, that you are to be full of the fullness of him. That, that, that his life is to be seen through you. That this is not me doing stuff for Jesus. This is, hey, yes, I'm participating, but could I allow the life of Jesus to come in and do something in and through me? That it's, it's like him doing something in and through me. See, see, what if I would get out of my own way and allow him to begin to perform on the stage of my life? I'm participating. I know that. We're not, I'm not talking about passivity. I'm not saying do not, I'm, I'm not saying any of that kind of stuff. I'm saying you've got to have a change of source. That this is not about you driving your life. This is about allowing him driving your life. That you abide in him. You depend upon him. And he begins to do something in and through your life. And the church is to be the fullness of him who fills all in all. And what does our world today need more than ever before? What does our world need in the midst of its darkness and its pollution and its corruption? We need the church to be full of Jesus. Why, why are people leaving the church in droves? Why is it that the teenagers, you know, 70, 80% of teenagers when they hit their 20s leave the church? It's because the church is not full of Jesus. The church is full of just us and our issues. See, the church is this to be his body, that we are to reveal the fullness of him. Is that true in your personal life? Is that true in your family? Hey, is that true in your church? Is that true in your community? Let's pray. Lord, Lord, we need you. We need to be full of you. Lord, we don't need us in the way. We've been in the way far too much. Lord, what would it look like to be full, to be measured by the fullness of who you are? Lord, what would it look like for me to get out of my own way for you to be seen. Lord, what would it look like if the only explanation for my life was you? Lord, what would it look like if the taste that was left in the mouths of people that I spent time with was not me, it was you? See, what if people were captivated with you? Well, what if they looked and all they saw in my life was just this pot with a big crack in it? But that's actually good because the bigger the crack, the more they get to see of you. So Lord, like Paul, I want to I celebrate the fact that I am weak and that I am helpless and I need you. The fact that I don't have this all together. And I, hey, I, Lord, I, I'm desperate for you. But could you in your life, through the filling of the Holy Spirit, come and just indwell my life to such a, to such a degree, God, that, that you would ooze out of every pore of my body, that you would do something in and through my life that, that I could not accomplish on my own. And that when the world looks upon my life, when the world looks upon my family, when the world looks upon my church, when the world looks upon my community that I live in, they don't see us. They see you. Because the reality of the Christian life, Lord, I'm, I'm so convinced, is you. And Lord, the only way that I'm going to be able to pull this thing off, the only way that I can live this impossible life is not through talent, it's not through intellect, it's not through ability. God, I need you. 
God, I, I need the one who has created the standard to come and invade my life and produce the standard in and through me. Well, Lord, I, I cannot do this on my own. I don't even want to try anymore to do it on my own because my best attempts are but filthy rags. So, Lord, I come afresh and just say that I need you. And, Lord, I ask that you would do something marvelous through my life, that you would fill me with all the fullness of who you are, that when the world looks upon us, they know that we are Christians not because of religious activities, not because of the words we say, but because there's no doubt in their mind that you are the God of our lives, that they clearly see you in and through us. Everything we do, everything we say, even how we think if they could get into our minds, they would be confronted by the reality that this is you that every moment our focus is you. This is not adding you to our lives. This is our lives is centered around you. This is about the centrality of who you are. This is about your preeminence. Jesus, I pray like Paul did at the end of chapter four of Ephesians. But speaking the truth in love, may we grow up into all things into you, who is the head, Christ himself, from whom the whole body is joined together and connected by every joint and ligament, as every part effectively does its work and grows, building itself up in love, which is you. <laughs> Lord, we need you. Our world desperately needs to see you. So may we be crackpots, demonstrating the life of Christ, demonstrating the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Lord, thank you for the, just the privilege we have of being filled with you. Thank you for the privilege we have of having your life. Thank you for the privilege of not having to produce this on our own in our own effort, but that we get to be filled with the very power and life and substance, that we get to be partakers of the divine nature and everything that we need for life and for godliness is found in you and only in you. What a privilege. Lord, we love you. We just give you all the praise and all the glory for all this is from you and through you and to you. For your praise, renown, and glory. Love you, Jesus. Pray all this in your holy and precious, very powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you'd like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. No, I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.